Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The case of the 43 Ayotzinapa students who were kidnapped in 2014 struck a nerve in Mexico and around the world. The parents of the 43 led huge demonstrations and confronted the authorities about the case. I spoke with family members of the 43 in 2015. They made a compelling case for justice. Here's a clip from that conversation. Pues, mi esperanza. Tengo mucha fe, mucha esperanza en que con la ayuda, primeramente Dios, vamos a encontrar a nuestros hijos. Y todo lo que está en la oscuridad va a salir la luz, porque eso es lo que nosotros buscamos. Well, my hope, I have a lot of faith, a lot of hope that with the help of God, we will find our children and that everything that is in the darkness will come to light. That is what we are looking for, for the facts to come forward of the 26th and 27th of September. Stop it. Stop the injustice. Stop the lies. We pray to God that our children show up safe and sound. It is his will and not ours. We hold responsible the government for what happened. We know that they are alive, and we want them alive. And we will not rest until we find them, until we know the truth of what happened to them. It is the only way to pressure our government. But the truth has proved elusive for the families of the 43. The government has stuck to a story that no independent authority thinks is credible. In June of this year, a federal court in Mexico made a historic ruling and ordered the government to investigate the enforced disappearances again. This time, the case would be supervised by a Truth and Justice Commission that will be led by human rights experts and by the parents of the victims. Mexico's president-elect, Andres Manuel López Obrador, promised that he would follow on the invest, follow up on the investigation during his campaign. Joining us to discuss the historic ruling in the Ayotzinapa case and whether or not the incoming administration in Mexico can follow through on the campaign promises are Milena Ang. She is an assistant professor at the University of Chicago and specializes in comparative politics with an emphasis on corruption and judicial accountability in Mexico. Nice to meet you, Milena. Hi, thank you so much for having me. And also with us on the line from Mexico is Maria Luis Aguilar. She's a collaborator in the International Unit at the Miguel Augustin Pro Juarez Human Rights Center, the organization that legally represents the families of the victims. Thank you very much for joining us, Maria. Thank you so much for having me. I wonder if you could tell us more about the ruling, because I think it surprised a lot of people. I understand it even surprised your organization. How did, what, how did that go down? Well, yeah, that was a very impressive uh, ruling for everyone and for the families, uh, obviously. Um, this ruling comes from uh, some of the um, appeals to constitutional challenges that the same detainees uh, process because of all the irregularities irregularities in the due process of the investigations. Uh, so the detainees were challenging their charges, basically, and the way that they were charged and detained. Uh, and so this high court, this federal uh, court, decided that um, the detainees had, um, uh, they, were, they were right and that they were, um, that they had to be 
uh, once again recharged and uh, the, uh, this time with a due process. But they went a little bit further and they started to review all the investigation. And what they said is that it was clear that the investigation had a lot of irregularities, like many international mechanisms had said before. Uh, but also that this um, investigation wasn't prompt, wasn't effective, wasn't independent, and most importantly, wasn't impartial. So uh, what they said is like this uh, whole investigation had to be once again done, uh, that, the, that the core of the investigation had to be the victim's rights, and that for that to happen with the kind of um, uh, attorney general's office that we have in Mexico, um, the only way to do it was to have at the center the victims, that the victims were collaborators, and that you have an extraordinary mechanism of investigation that they called uh, an inquiry commission, uh, an independent inquiry commission, where victims, their representatives, and um, um, international institutions of human rights participate. It sounds like something like that has has never happened before. Is that something that anybody has seen in Mexico that you can think of, where the families of the victims get to participate in the investigation? Well, actually, the the Constitution itself allows the um, uh, allows the families and the representatives to collaborate in the investigation, uh, and that's why the the tribunal put it in the in the sentence. Uh, what it's new is that they they did it uh, because they were sure that the investigation wasn't impartial and wasn't independent. Uh, so we we do have the the how to say the normative framework to do this, uh, but the the issue is that it was very clear that the judiciary was telling the attorney general's office that they were not doing their work. Um, Milena, I wanted to ask you a question about the willingness of the Mexican government to to, to address this issue again. Um, what does what do the authorities do? It's in this um, the federal government is in this unusual uh, transition from one president to another. Um, I imagine that the government that's been resisting this all this time is just going to keep on doing that at this time. Yes, yes, that's absolutely right. Um, So the current president, uh, Enrique Peña Nieto, who is going to be out on December uh, of this year, he has tried to either stall or even stop the creation of this uh, truth and justice special commissioner or tribunal. And uh, declarations from all of his cabinet is that either it's impossible to do so, that they're incapable, that there's not enough resources. So it does seem that whatever movement we're going to see on this particular case, it's not going to be uh, on this administration. This is, of course, very sad, but not um, surprising at all. Um, and so it seems that what uh, what most of us are, are doing is just waiting to see what President-elect um, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador is going to do once he once he come into power. And he's talked a little bit about, uh, you know, putting this case at the forefront of his uh, of his government. He's talked about creating this tribunal. He has uh, nominated and mentioned specific people that will take on um, that will be the responsibles of of uh, conducting this case and these investigations. Uh, but I guess that we'll just have to wait and see. What have you made out of his campaign so far and the way he addresses corruption and systemic problems in in Mexico? Uh, He's he's talked a big game. Uh, What do you think of it? 
Yes, he's definitely talked a big game. He ran in. Uh, he ran a very, very successful campaign, saying that he would fight corruption, which is uh, one of the biggest uh, problems in Mexico now. Certainly, the the citizens do think that corruption is just so endemic, um, and it's basically preventing to have any sort of normal, uh, you know, civic life. Um, so he ran on this on this anti-corruption campaign. Um, I think that that what he has been doing ever since he got elected up until now, this this uh, was last month. So in this in this few weeks. He has continued to talk about it, which is on the one hand, uh, I think, encouraging. It does seem that he didn't just forget about his promises of campaign. But um, he has been addressing this problem in a way that I don't think quite delivers because he claimed that he was going to uh, fight corruption differently. Instead, he seems to be nominating again and uh, talking about the fight against corruption by relying on the very same institutions that have been used in the past, uh, you know, the past couple of decades. So he's, he's, uh, he has not talked, for example, about reforming the investigatorial system, which is, as this, uh, as this ruling that we're talking about, it just shows how incapable the current institutions are of creating and building a credible uh, investigation that's based on actual forensic evidence, for example, as opposed to confessions uh, that are most of the times or a lot of the times uh, obtained through either torture or in very uh, or, or under duress. So he, he hasn't talked at all about that. He has nominated uh, one of his close collaborators to be the the basically the the secretary of that handles uh, bureaucratic corruption, the Secretaria de Función Pública. This is an institution that is incredibly damaged, um, that has very little trust of the citizens, and still the fact that he's betting on staffing these already. Uh, these already inst- these institutions that are already not trusted by the citizens, I think uh, it gives a little bit of it, it's a little bit of a caution there. I think that we should have with with the way that he's doing it currently. Milena Eng is from the University of Chicago and specializes in corruption and judicial accountability in Mexico. We're talking about the Ayotzinapa case of the disappeared 43, and Maria Luis Aguilar uh, Rodriguez is in Mexico City with the human rights organization that represents the families of the victims. How does how does what um, Milena was saying there sound to you? Is is that uh, is the incoming Obrador administration kind of a making noises that? may not be effective in the case you most want to solve? Well, I think um, it's it's also very clear that the uh, upcoming administration is trying to do a lot in, in the process before the transition uh, happens, because we have a very long transition. I mean, he just takes office into, until December. Uh, so they have to start moving on the main issues that they that they basically win on, so corruption, violence, etc. So the thing it's like the challenge is very big, uh, and in this specific case, I think their compromises uh, were that they were going to find the truth, uh, and the way to do it is to listen to the families. Uh, uh, we must say it. I mean, because uh, the families doesn't want a commission that only gives them, you know, like this kind of uh, classic commission of truth that will come from or from the memory and to uh, clarify what happened, but without actually finding the, the students. For, for the families, what it's important is to have something that is functional, that actually will tell them in the uh, the sooner the better, where, what happened to the students, where, uh, where are they, uh, what uh, 
who was the responsible. Uh, and I think the the challenge for many of uh, of the compromises that he made as as this is to actually figure out how to institutionalize this and how to operate it. And. Um Luis Manuel Obrador is someone who has um, operated in a government in the past. He has administrative experience. He's got um, uh, ideas about these kind of things. Um, What would be an effective way to do this if you were doing it, Maria? Well, for us, it's it's to not start from scratch. Uh, I mean, for us, uh, there are many things that international mechanisms have already clarified of what happened. And then you need to go further on from that and to have all these recommendations that have been done, put it on effect, because that's exactly what what this current administration has not done. This current administration has been focused on actually uh, cover their own lives. uh, And for this to work is to have teeth, I mean, to have really an institution, an attorney general's um, institution that actually can prosecute people who have covered up the, the, um, the investigation, but also to have access to people who have actually might know something and to find those who have been fugitive and to scratch from all this information that we already have but that nobody has actually perceived. Um, it's interesting. What have the other international commissions found that you think people uh, could start with in these new commissions? Uh, what are uh, the UN's had some interesting reports? Yeah. Uh, so the the investigation has been um, supervised by the Inter-American Commission of Human Rights and by the UN. The UN has been very clear that torture was used for. Uh, all the investigation, and so that many of this, um, um, what, what is the official version of the of the attorney general's office, it's not true because it was made by torture. But the key part was the the work of the Inter-American Commission of Human Rights, which actually uh, appointed a group of independent experts that were part of the investigation, so who that for a year and a half were working with the Attorney General's Office to clarify what happened. So thanks to this international group of experts, we know now that this operation was large enough to spend like five hours of control of a whole region, that there were different scenarios where the students were disappeared, that there was the collusion of, of not only municipal police who were involved, but also state police, federal police, the army. Mm-hmm. And all this was clarified because of the international group of experts um, and they then left a series of recommendations to where to look into the investigation. Um, obviously, these recommendations have not been followed by the, in, the Mexican institutions, uh, but this is key. And actually, this um, sentence, the ruling of the High Court, what it says is that these kind of institutions, this kind of group of experts should come back to the investigation and pursue of these lines. And um, Melina Eng, she uh, she's describing a very fulsome thing there, and um, the Obrador says that he is uh, willing to let international uh, people come back in and start start doing their work again and, and addressing this. Yes. Um, so, yeah, so, sorry. Sure. Uh, Milena. Yes. So. Um, 
So AMLO has has um, said that there was actually just a, a couple of weeks ago, AMLO has also antagonized particularly the civil society a little bit, particularly in regards to uh, nominating an independent attorney general. So, uh, you know, par particularly for large corruption scandals, the way that they're usually investigated is uh, using this office of, of the attorney general. Uh, there is a reform in the, in the making and... Uh, The idea of this reform is that there will be an independent attorney general with full power to decide who are they investigating and with what sort of resources. And it is not really clear that AMLO is going to um, is going to let sort of like this independent attorney general as opposed to an attorney general that he is going to nominate as part of, of as part of his cabinet, which is the way that currently um, attorney generals generals are um, nominated. So hopefully, and I do think that he has uh, that Amlos in his discourse has separated a little bit dealing with corruption in sort of like big political spheres versus dealing with all of these war on drugs, which which is a different type of corruption, right? This is not this is not basically you know uh, very high level politicians stealing money. This is, you know, cops and militaries taking bribes from from the drug dealer. So he has separated these two. It, it does sound like he, in this case, you're going up against every security service in the region. No, it's not, a, not an easy case. That's not, not a cakewalk or anything. No, it's not a cakewalk. And I actually think that this, uh, it might be a good moment right now with this, particularly with this ruling to start thinking about the possibilities of these ad hoc tribunals to actually address what is a systemic problem, right? So this is, this was obviously a very important case. Uh, you know, it was, it was, it, it made international headlines. But one of the, uh, one of the things to, to ask oneself is like, okay, this is a problem that is everywhere. You know, this is, these are not the only uh, dis disappearances. And so to what extent can we start relying only on these special tribunals or on these type of, of uh, resolutions to solve a problem that just runs much deeper? Milena, Milena Eng is an assistant professor at the University of Chicago. She specializes in comparative politics with an emphasis on corruption and judicial accountability in Mexico. And Maria Luisa Aguilar Rodriguez is a collaborator in the International Unit at the Miguel Augustine Pro Juarez Human Rights Center, the organization that represents the families of the victims and will keep our eye on the case of the 43 from Ayotzinapa. Thanks very much for both of you for joining us and talking about the development in the case and corruption in Mexico. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about one of the sessions at WakandaCon 2018. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The Black Panther film inspired more than just ticket sales. WakandaCon 2018 takes place the next three days at the downtown Hilton Hotel. The organizers say their aim is to figure out how to recreate Wakanda in real life. 
a place free and unshackled from the ravages of racism, exploitation, and discrimination, a place free from emotional, physical, and sexual abuse. There's all sorts of sessions at WakandaCon 2018 on Afrofuturism, tech, social justice, comedy. With me is Chelsea Frazier. She's doing a session with Michael Riley on Dreaming of Black Ecologies. It's great to meet you. It's so nice to meet you, too. Hello. Hi. Hi. Uh, Chelsea's a doctoral candidate at Northwestern. She writes about black feminism and ecology. Um, It's great to meet you. Um, Tell me a bit about your ideas here on black feminism and ecology and what you want to get across in this session. Sure. Um, Well, one of the central um, elements of my work is the fact that when black women make art or write about or organize around environmental issues, they're typically taking into account the ways that racism, classism, and sexism actually underpin environmental degradation. And so what I try to do is center the voices of black women artists, writers, and activists um, to think about the ways that they conceptualize an alternative understanding of environmentalism. And it's alternative to what I call the colonial earth ethics (laughs) that we are are much more familiar with and that typically guide our relationships with our material environments. Tell me more about the colonial earth ethics yeah. because um, we're kind of, we're so involved in it, we, we don't even see it sometimes. Yes. Okay. Well, one of the... Um, one of the ways that I like to think about it, right, like if we're if sort of we're in this movie called Life, you know, you need the hero and you need the antagonist. This is super reductive, but, you know, go with me. Um, and if if um, black feminist ecoethics, which is also what I write about more essentially even than colonial earth ethics, if black feminist um, ecoethics is the hero, then colonial earth ethics is 100 percent the antagonist. <laughs> Um, And that can encompass a lot of things, many of the things even that you mentioned um, in the WakandaCon sort of overview, right? Like racism, sexism, colonialism, ableism, um, homophobia, like these are all things, um, capitalism, these are all um, interacting elements that uphold a colonial earth ethic um, that often gets obscured in sort of our ideas of what it means to be sort of like a good you know, environmental person, right? And a lot of these ideas that we have are typically recapitulated and reinforced through popular culture. Environmentalism, it's typically seen as a super white thing, mm-hmm. is it? And, <laughs> and, and uh, why is that? Uh, what do you think is going on here? I think it's a lot of things. Um, but one of the things, just to sort of continue with this um, conversation about colonialism, um, one of the things is the fact that so um black black studies scholars have been um have been careful about how to position their conversations around nature because of blackness's association with bestiality and you know and sort of like some type of some type of intimacy with nature that is just painted onto black people and onto black bodies um on the flip side of that you have um you have typically more like mainstream white environmental organizations and conversations that don't understand the fraught relationships to the natural environment that black people have instantiated by things like lynching um, or um, blockages to home ownership and land ownership um, and, you know, 
of course, chattel slavery and sort of like what that kind of um, exploitative relationship to um, the land, to notions of the pastoral, these kinds of ideas that are in the white imagination scenes of sort of like refuge can be scenes of terror for black people and black subjects, right? Um, and so those are some of the reasons why it's it's considered a white space. And that's like, I mean, I could go on and on and on about why environmentalism um, is seen as a white thing. Um, but uh, but also um, a lot of the a lot of the the ways that we make sense of environmentalism are deeply classed and raced. For example, there's a lot of um, sort of like policy-driven um, solutions, quote-unquote solutions to environmental degradation that are deeply ableist and deeply classist. For example, the straw ban or, or the plastic bag bans, right? Um, I'm not saying that the use of plastics is not a problem. It absolutely is. But when we, um, in a very unnuanced and very clunky and harmful way, um, sort of like implement and impose these bans. The, in addition to low-income people, low-income communities of color being the ones that have to bear the brunt of the effects of environmental degradation, then you're asking them to pay for it, <laughs> you know? Um, and so those are also part of the reasons why these spaces are so white. I'm talking with Chelsea Frazier. She's doing a session at WakandaCon 2018 on dreaming of black ecologies. Um, so w- what is a black ecology dream look like what what would what would that uh where's a better place yeah um well that is the question isn't it (laughs) i think that um part of it is taking a step back and and thinking about sort of like how we got into this mess um in the first place and um it's certainly dreaming of a black ecology is i think of it more so as sort of like a thought experiment rather than simply a thing and also thinking about the ways that um black women black queer people black uh low income communities of color have already theorized ways to make sense of a more ethical relationship with not only other humans not based on um human hierarchies right but also other forms of material be they animals uh be they trees be they grass, you know, et cetera, et cetera, and so on. Um, Basically thinking, having a more empathetic relationship with others, you know, sort of broadly construed that that are not based um, inherently on exploitation, which which is something that underpins colonial earth ethics. What is capitalism the problem then? Is capitalism the thing that is, um, a lot of people think that's what's killing the earth. And it sounds like you're describing something that is moving, would move away from that. Well, I'm not going to say that capitalism isn't the problem, but I I would certainly encourage folks not to say capitalism's the problem so we shouldn't be talking about racism or capitalism's the problem so we shouldn't be talking about sexism or, you know, so on and so forth. Like capitalism is one of many interacting systems of belief and um forms of government that have created this exploitative relationship with the environment that we are all extremely complicit in. Um and because now capitalism is an extremely important part of that. Right. But it's not the only thing. And we have to constantly be thinking about the ways that capitalism and the way um, that it interacts with these with these other entities. Right. That underpin colonial earth ethics. We have to constantly be thinking about those relationships in addition to capitalism as sort of like a um, individual phenomena, which even just saying that it's not an individual phenomena ever. Right. Yeah. Uh, what did you see in Black Panther that you liked that you yeah. thought that I, I can get this is kind of moving me the direction I want to go? Yeah. Um, so this is always, this is like the catch 22 of being a cultural critic who actually enjoys the things that you're critiquing. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I mean, just in terms of representation, like 
I am a dark-skinned woman. I have kinky hair. When I go into a theater, it is very rarely that I see myself reflected back. Um, and just bathing in the pleasure of seeing myself reflected, seeing me and a story that is somewhat relatable to me. Um, I mean, that was wonderful, you know? Um, and also just just being having a space in the darkness of a movie theater to just let your imagination go and really to imagine. And also, I really appreciated the way that the film, um, you know, and this is all Marvel films, really, but it <laughs> dabbles in that sort of like emotional pull that pulls you in, you know. Um, and but because, again, it has to do with things that I think about constantly, you know, blackness, class, relationships to land, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it, was an, it was an ability for me to let my sort of like imagination and my critical mind sort of like come together and run wild. So I loved that about the film, you know, um, and it was fun. I love, I'm kind of a comic book nerd. I like superhero <laughs> movies, you know, it's fun. It's fun. <laughs> it, one of the things uh, that is interesting about Wakanda. I mean, it, it mm-hmm. seemed, does seem like they lucked into something really good mm-hmm. and that they're, they're, um, the orb that they get, what, what's it called? I forgot already. Uh, oh, the, um, the, the blue, material, unobtainium? Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, um, or no, that's not what it is. Well, vibranium. Vibranium. Oh my and, goodness. Yes. Uh, were, <laughs> so the vibranium they luck into, it's, mm-hmm. um, uh, it, it is kind of in the lines of the colonial framework, though, mm-hmm. right? I mean, mm-hmm. it just happens to be a really good one yeah. that allows them a, a little freedom to be better, but yeah. it doesn't get them over the true exploitation hurdle. No. I mean, there's <laughs> you know, there's this um, kind of throwaway line that it's in movies a lot. Um, it's this idea of like, you know, there's, there's always like some white man coming in with a suit on. We have unlimited resources to do X, Y, and Z. Like the, the, the thought of an unlimited resource is insane and is not real. <laughs> um, all resources, no matter what they are, are exhaustible on this planet Earth. <laughs> um, and so sort of like what what Black Panther does, which I think is really interesting, is sort of dabble in this kind of like colonial earth ethics taken to their kind of like logical extreme in terms of its um, fantasy. But but all in and but included in that is this kind of like idea of like colonial black primitive primitivism. And it's all like sort of like conjumbled into one film. Um, and so I don't I actually do not see Black Panther as an alternative to a colonial earth. I see it as um, extremely in line with what we with how we make sense of um, colonial earth ethics 100 percent. You know, and that's something that we have to keep in mind, which is why even though it does encourage a particular kind of thought process that can maybe get us outside of that, if we if we are intentional about that, I wouldn't say the film face value really represents that. Um, do you think that subsequent films will move in a direction that no. is more pleasing? <laughs> that ultimately, I mean, aren't they? They'll be pleasing, but they—I don't. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, um, you know, colonialism can be seductive, but I don't know if um, I have. I I I can't. I mean, it mm. sounds like they're going to engage the rest of the world in yes. a better form of being together right. as human beings. And that was like the mm. the idea that was coming and yes. it was um, going to be a happy place. I mean, We're I all think... all going to want to live there. Right. I think... Oh, all of us. I mean, I think that we... Um, we always have to keep... We always have to take into account that... Um, you know, Hollywood is, is, is limited by a particular kind of metric, right? And one of the ways that colonial earth ethics, again, continue to be reinforced is through ideas that Hollywood produces, right? <laughs> um, and Hollywood finds 
amazing, wonderful ways to recapitulate those ideas in ways that think that we're doing something different, but really we're doing something the same, right? So let's add a little bit of like, um, you know, um, something that we're calling Afrofuturism and idealized, quote unquote, black tech, right? Like, you know, these are some nice decorations, but they're not actually alternative to some of the ideas that I'm interested in writing against. Um, I do think, though, again, that for in terms of representation, in terms of um, entertainment, in terms of, um, you know, black actors getting jobs in terms of these sort of like really pragmatic things. I'm really excited about where Black Panther goes and I'm excited to continue having fun at the movies. <laughs> <laughs> Are there things you're excited about in the environmental movement? What yes. uh, lights you up in the environmental movement? Absolutely. Um, well, I'm just excited by the fact that I get to, I don't, I, I just, I get to join a conversation that um, many black people before me have already begun and are continuing to do. There's wonderful work. One of the women that I study is Hazel Johnson from Algel Gardens here in Chicago. And what she was able to do in her neighborhood, self-funded environmental studies, going door to door, getting the stories of her community, um, whatever was plaguing them, their illnesses, both emotional and physical, um, and and also affecting real change in her community with extremely limited resources. Like every time I think about her and the work that she did, I get excited. Um, I get Tell excited me more about, about the way. Her. Tell me more. Who is yes. she? Yes. Um, so I was through another scholar in Chicago, Eve Ewing. When I told her about the early stage of my project, she's like, Chelsea, you need to learn more about Hazel Johnson. And I was like, okay, <laughs> I will. Um, Eve Ewing is a sociologist. Right. Assistant professor. Yeah, I'm poet. sure you're familiar with you. Yes, and poet. She's fantastic. Um, and um, she told me about um, Hazel Johnson and her daughters and them as and their work as environmental leaders in Altgeld Gardens, which is one of the most polluted neighborhoods, not only in Chicago but um, um, where people live. Every, yes, where people live. Um, and. One of and I've been sort of to the archives to think about um, their work from a historical perspective as well and sort of also how um, how they've been able to sort of like write themselves into the history of Chicago um, from an archival standpoint. Right. Um, their archives are at the Vivian Hirsch <laughs> Library on the south side in case anyone was interested in going to check it out. But um, one of the. One of the elements that I really appreciate about them is there's all this idea like, well, if the neighborhood's bad, leave. You know, why don't why don't you just leave? And they are very insistent about emplacement. Are very insistent about no. This is my community. This is where I live. This is this is the people that I love, and I'm interested in not only investing in the people that I love, but also the neighborhood and the land um, that I am that I've developed this beautiful relationship with, albeit it is a toxic one, but that toxicity is not my fault, right? Um, and with low-income communities of color, more often than not at a policy level and also from a culture at a cultural sort of mainstream level, the fault is always the part of black people, right? It's always the part, oh, well, you know, um, black people don't clean up their neighborhoods. That's why it's so, that's why they're so polluted. And it's like, no, um, let's talk about redlining, <laughs> you know, let's talk about, let's talk about the fact that waste management systems, including recycling plants are typically placed in, um, in low income communities of color, you know? And so, and just as a tidbit with the recycling thing, you know, 
that's sort of one of those, again, colonial earth ethics <laughs> that gets that gets heralded. So like, OK, if I recycle, then I'm like a good environmental subject. I'm not saying that people shouldn't recycle. But we also do have to keep in mind the fact that like that do, that is a process that does continue to af- to negatively affect low income communities of color, just like that straw ban, just like that plastic bag ban. Right. So these these um these solutions, right, to these environmental problems have to be looked at from multiple angles. Chelsea Fraser is doing a session at WakandaCon 2018. It's on Dreaming of Black Ecologies. She's doing it with Michael Riley, and it's uh, tomorrow at 5. Yeah, tomorrow am, at 5. Uh, tomorrow at 5, and mm-hmm. the, the WakandaCon is at the downtown Hilton Hotel on Michigan Avenue. Yes, Great so to much. see you, great to meet you, Likewise. and come back sometime. I absolutely will. Thanks so much for having me. Chelsea's a doctoral candidate at Northwestern and writes about black feminism and ecology. Coming up after the break, we'll hear about a photo exhibit that is depicts a family torn apart by U.S. immigration policies. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. U.S. immigration policies are tearing families apart every day. With me is Detroit-based visual journalist and emerging lens photographer Rachel Wolf. She documents one family separation in her project, Deported, an American Division. There's an uh, exhibit opening tonight at Artworks Projects at 625 North Kingsbury in the River North uh, area. It's from 6 to 8 p.m. tonight. Great to meet you. Thanks for joining us, Rachel. Yeah, it's great to meet you, too. Thank you so much for having me. Um, tell us about this family. How did you meet um, the family of uh, Lourdes Salazar Bautista? This project and meeting Lourdes fell into my lap in a little bit. Um, I work on a lot of documentary projects, and someone had contacted me about Lourdes and her family as they were going through the beginning of all of this, realizing that they there was a chance that she would be deported. It was about a year ago, a year ago yesterday. To explain their situation. Uh, she's got a, a pretty a pretty large family, and they're all in different statuses. Sure, yeah. So Lourdes, she uh, lived in the U.S. for 20 years, and she has three children. They're now aged 20, 16, and 14, and their names are Pamela, Brian, and Louise. And her, uh, her husband came with her to the U.S. when they first came together, um, and then he was deported as well in 2010. And she raised her children by herself in the U.S. for um, for all of those years. The kids grew up mostly without their father. Um, right now, Lourdes and her husband are reunited in Mexico after she was deported. And she brought her two youngest children with her to Mexico, leaving her eldest daughter behind. Well, I... 
That sounds like a long process. Her, uh, I imagine it really started with her husband's deportation in 2010, and uh, she was known to authorities all that time? Yes, so it did. She um, she has been going through quite a bit. The whole family has been. She uh, has been receiving what they've been calling stays of deportation each year. So she reported to the immigration office for seven years each year to make sure that she could stay to take care of her kids who are all U.S. born. And so one year, this past year, something changed and they said no. Um, and then that left her campaigning and fighting to be able to stay and stay with her kids, to watch them grow up, to do everything that she would want to do as a mom in the U.S. How did she feel about you being along for the ride as this thing really got down to the nub of the decision for her? Uh, it surprises me still how open that this family is and how honest and real and raw they are. And they let me in at their fragile moments. Um, I feel that with a lot of documentary work, it, it, um, it is surprising and it always is an honor. They've, they let me in um, and they, they basically just did what they were doing, which is the most I could hope for to be there with them and to see what they're going through and to be able to share their story. And I, I really think that the reason they let me in and the reason they still let me in is because Lourdes wants what's best for her kids and she wants to get the story out, not only for her family, but to raise awareness of what's going on and to show a real face of honesty and humanity to what is going on in this, this issue and what it looks like on a family. What kind of work was Lourdes doing here? She was cleaning homes in the U.S., and she is now doing that in Mexico. But the the pay is so drastically different that um, comparing she worked for something like five hours in Mexico and earned the equivalent of what would be $7 or so in the U.S., and she would earn about $100 or something or more for the equivalent time. And, yeah, the what she has always said and what I've heard over and over again is the amount of work that she has to do and that everyone has to do in Mexico that you have to work so hard to succeed and that oftentimes it doesn't it hasn't worked out in a lot of ways and they're yeah they're doing the best they can I imagine the um, there's the one child who stayed here yes Pamela and she's at Michigan State is that what's going on yes she is she's finishing up college and um, actually Lourdes is uh, middle child Lulis is thinking about coming back as well, and she's 16 and considering leaving both of her parents to be able to go to high school in the U.S. for what she grew up with. Yeah, I imagine it's very difficult to go back to a place you've never been right? and lived. Um, The photos, um, it must have been hard to take them. There's a lot of crying. There's people crying in in these photos pretty often. Yes, it it is really hard. Um, I don't want to be the person that takes pictures of people crying. I don't want to to photograph people at their worst or on their worst days. Um, and it's I remember when Brian was at the airport. We were they were leaving. It was a year ago from yesterday. And Brian's the thirteen year old. He, yes, he's now fourteen, but he was thirteen at the time. Um, the moment where it hit me the most was when um, he was. They were going through security, and they had already gone through, and everyone had said goodbye. They had kind of a parade of people with signs and support, and then out of nowhere, Brian's school teacher came running up. Um, and screaming his name, he ran back through the security line, and they embraced crying, and that's when I 
had had to blink back tears behind my camera too. It's um, it's emotional, and you get close to these people, and you understand what they're going through, and that's what I want people to see when they look through these photos. Um, how where else has the exhibit gone? So this is the the opening. It oh, this is, is the period? this is okay. the yeah. <laughs> um, so it will travel after this. Um, it's going to be on exhibit at Artworks until October, and they have um, a projection as well going on later in the year. But uh, yeah, it is um, going to be going possibly to New York State and New York City and or Michigan. Um, it's going to be yeah a little bit around. I'm talking with Rachel Wolf, who documented one of the families uh, separated by U.S. immigration policies in her project, Deported an American Division. The opening is tonight at Artworks Projects on Kingsbury Street from 6 to 8 p.m. Um, you're going to follow the family to Mexico next year. The project is ongoing in, in a sense. It is, yes. And I was already – I went to Mexico with um, to see them this past October 2017, and I also just got back from seeing them this past May in 2018. So, um, what, it was, is, what was that like? Where do they live? Well, they live in a place called Toluca, Mexico. Um, it's a major city, and they moved there and went there because of the school – for the kids, it's uh, the kids don't like it as much as the U.S. and their favorite part and where Lourdes and her husband are from. They're from uh, San Nicolas in Mexico. It's a village, and um, that is where they go each weekend and they spend their time there. It's um, the land is beautiful. When Lourdes once stood on the roof of her house, you can see all these mountains in the background and. I remember her looking to me and telling me that that she, when she was younger, she used to think those mountains were the end of the world, um, and the, now she's showing her kids that area. So, in a way, it's always, it, there's a lot of complexities to this because she's reunited with family, and they're not with it's not in a situation they want to be in. Um, but they're adapting and making the most of their situation that they're in. And what's what's the father do there? So he right now works in construction, um, and he it was when he was separated from his family, he was living in that village in Senegalas and working on the fields and on the farms, which he still does on the weekends. And um, yeah, they the reason that they moved to Tuluco was to get away from being living in Senegalas, where um, a lot of people work very hard for very little money, and that there's not always a whole lot of opportunity. Um, for the U.S. born kids, does the family have a dream of what the, their future could be like? Um, yes, Lourdes. I mean, Lourdes wants her whole life is for her kids. Um, she dreams that she wants to come back, and she she also wants to just be with her kids. She wants what's best for them. She wants them to succeed, to get an education, to to be and live um, happy wherever they're living. Um, is there a legal way she can come back if she if that if that is if that dream is in the U.S. Can she do that or with a daughter who is here as a U.S. citizen or children? So according to Lourdes's uh, lawyer, um, when she when Pamela turns twenty one and she's twenty right now, um, they're hoping to apply for a pardon to be able to fight for Lourdes to return. Um, at the moment, she has a ten year ban, um, and there's. She is still hoping and fighting, and the family hasn't given up faith that they can all be together and all live in the same country and love each other in the same country. 
The immigration law is so complicated. After the 10-year ban, she could petition to be in the U.S. legally and reconnect with her family uh, if the laws stay the way they are now. Is that... Well, she's hoping to petition to come back sooner. Um, Yeah, the the 10-year ban is what they ordered when she was deported about a year ago. But with the current administration in office, it seems like that would be an impossibility and that would not happen. Right. There's a lot of difficulty happening in all these sorts of immigration. Um, the, they, would, they may not get it. They may, they may come back. They may not. Uh, the way things are looking today, I mean, who knows? They're, they're fighting and they haven't lost hope, I think, is what, um, what I find amazing and in in their strength. Uh, yeah. What did you learn about the community in Detroit in this in this project? Um, well, Detroit is a is a wonderful community. The um, Lardas and her family are actually from Ann Arbor, Michigan, which is close to Detroit, um, and they they had an incredible outpouring of support. Um, her whole community rallied for her to stay. Um, the whole uni- the University of Michigan. Um, she just was, is very loved in the community of Ann Arbor. And I think it really shows uh, when people get to know someone and they, that she was part of her community and she was really, really cared about there. And she would like to come back to that community in Ann Arbor, I imagine. Yes. Yeah, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Um, well, if people come by tonight, uh, what's going on at the Artworks Projects Gallery? Um, so tonight um, it's open at six and goes till eight. Um, I will be there. Uh, there will be an artist talk at six thirty, and um, there's it's free and open to the public as well. Uh, there will be work from Lourdes and her family adjusting to life in Mexico to really just the the whole goal to show um, the narrative of what this family is going through and to show their faces and understanding. Um, Deported an American Division, and it's tonight at the Artworks Projects uh, Gallery. The opening's from 6 to 8, and then it continues on through... October. 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 Thanks a lot for joining us, Rachel Wolf. Uh, she's a Detroit-based visual journalist and emerging lens photographer. Thanks for telling us about Deported an American Division. Thank you so much. Tomorrow on Worldview, we are going to talk about refugees, and the Trump administration has is thinking about slashing the number. It allows in even more. Hope you can join us for that conversation tomorrow on Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Shazmin Hussein and Vivian Garcia Blanco for production assistance, and thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.